This Dharma Talk was presented at the Austin Zen Center in Austin, Texas. For more information, visit austinzencenter.org. Good morning. Good morning. So welcome to the Austin Zen Center. Is there anyone here who is here for the very first time? Hi. I'm very well. How are you? (laughs) Welcome. Thank you. Happy to be here. So we are in what's called a practice period right now, which is a time of gathering gathering intentions, gathering folks, people who are practicing together. Um, This practice period, normally we have, when we do practice periods, they're about six to eight weeks. We have one in the spring and one in the fall. And uh, as I said, it's a collecting, it's kind of a collecting of energies, a collecting of intention, and a Um, a more intensive focus on a particular topic or a particular aspect of our practice life. This time, this practice period, the spring practice period we just started, um, we're looking at the topic of mind. It's a big topic. (laughs) It's ambitious to look at mind, but uh, we're not trying to exhaustively look at mind but open up uh, and tease apart ways that we uh, encounter mind. What is meant by mind? Is mind a thing? These kinds of questions. Perception, representation, what is reality? What is mental? What is physical? These, we can get into all kinds of trouble <laughs> with uh, this kind of inquiry. However, Buddhism has... Uh, is one of the most has one of the most elaborate and exhaustive studies of mind captured in the um, what's known as the Abhidhamma, one of the baskets, the Abhidhamma, which is a collection of not it's not an, a thing actually. There's many different Abhidhammas. Abhidhammas, uh, uh, an Abhidhamma is a kind of like a map a map of mind and all the mental factors that are possible within one's consciousness, one's way of... uh, Well, consciousness and and non-consciousness, actually. It kind of includes all of it. Um, I thought I would start by just saying a little bit about the... uh, My own interest in this topic... uh, is a lifelong interest. I know there are some of you out there who also have made it your life's work to study uh, a field of mind, whether it's cognitive science, uh, psychology, neurology. Yeah? We all study this thing or process or verb (laughs) mind. We all uh, encounter mind. Yeah? So my own life um, is a little bit of a way-seeking mind talk. A way-seeking mind talk, yeah. We've been talking about way-seeking mind talks in the practice period, which are uh, short talks uh, describing kind of how one came to find themselves sitting on a cushion, staring at a wall. <laughs> how one came to practice. What was the spark? What was the interest? What, was the, what were the causes and conditions that led one down a path of practice. And we can talk a little bit more about what that means. What is a path of practice? I'll, I'll mention some things towards the end of this talk. So in my own life, um, I left high school and went to college and didn't really know what I wanted to study, but I had in my mind that I would study law, medicine, and philosophy. <laughs> And that was what I wanted to do. And then the the medicine kind of fell away. The law definitely fell away. (laughs) Sorry, Jack. (laughs) (laughs) However, philosophy in particular became my major with a a minor as well, but uh, philosophy was my major. And the the topic within philosophy that most uh, 
inspired and encouraged and engaged me was the philosophy of mind. However, after going through an undergraduate degree and then a graduate degree in philosophy, I started thinking about the areas of mind that philosophers seemed woefully unaware of or unappreciative of, namely the brain. Like, what do philosophers know about the brain? Well, it turns out philosophers are learning about the brain. <laughs> Why? Because they have to. It's kind of like a big elephant in the room. It's like when you're studying the mind. However, uh, my own path led me to leave philosophy, not go, not to pursue a degree in a higher, a higher degree in philosophy. But I wanted to go into. Um, well, I didn't realize it. I wanted to go into neuro, neurobiology, and I did. I left behind my philosophy department and went into a brain and cognitive sciences department, which I thought, you know, this is a great way. And actually, my 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 program that I was I was in, in particular, what my research focus was on sex differences in learning and memory of zebra finches. It's kind of what happens when you go into higher education. <laughs> You're narrow, your focus just becomes more and more narrow, which was fascinating, but I realized fairly quickly that while I was very interested in, in um, the brain, and in particular in developmental biology, developmental neurobiology, um, there was something else that propelled me. It was more of a personal study for me that was of interest. And so before too long, I uh, encountered, uh, well, I didn't encounter, I guess I had already encountered, but I started to look towards um, my subjective experience, which is something that you don't really look at so much in science. Mostly it's looking at the objective reality of what is this thing universally doing. What is, and from my, from my, uh, in my program, it was in particular, what are these particular uh, neurotransmitters doing to these particular cells, right? And a good scientist is basically one who, uh, well, never mind, I don't want to. <laughs> that would be a different talk. So I ended up leaving graduate school, the Brain and Cognitive Science Graduate School, and going, uh, finding my way to San Francisco. I looked into getting jobs in research labs, but I also had not finished the, I had not completed my, uh, my degree program in philosophy, I had two incomplete papers, so I did those. And it was very interesting to see the process for myself, having left school, having left philosophy, and the study, that particular way of studying, gone into a, a brain and cognitive science, taken up a different, completely different modality of study, a dissecting uh, modality, like literally, dissecting modality of study. And then, Returning to philosophy with this new lens that I had discovered while I was in San Francisco, or not necessarily discovered, but decided to kind of launch myself into, which was the study of this thing or process called self, which includes mind or concept or conceiving consciousness. And what did I find? Oh my. <laughs> the study of one's own awareness and one's own consciousness and one's own causes and conditions that lead to identity, uh, to emotional triggers, to understanding past actions and how they impact current actions, it became ultimately very vast and, and not at all narrow in scope and focus. So going from this, what is tracking this one molecule and its effects on 
you know, the lifespan of cells. <laughs> I was in heaven. <laughs> this practice period, when we, as I said, we were looking at the topic of mind, and last um, Wednesday, on Wednesdays and Saturdays, during the practice period, we get together, the group of people in the practice period get together, and we, uh, we be with one another, and we, pr- we practice things, whether it's practicing giving uh, way-seeking mind talks and listening, or doing uh, meditations together, and we discuss uh, what, what we find. One of the exercises last, last week was to look at the movements of mind, to slow things down and look at movements of mind, and look at how, actually how pliable our awareness is, how open our awareness is to suggestion. Anybody from that group have a, uh, do you, did you feel like that was what we were doing? Yeah, for sure. (laughs) (laughs) I did. So how open our minds are, or what we're calling mind, to suggestion, to direction. Do you normally think of yourself as being involved in directing your mind and your attention? Or does it just kind of happen to you? On a good day? <laughs> yeah, right? This, this thing or this process that we, is with us constantly, without ceasing, it's almost too close. So when we take a step back and we sit, what are we doing when we sit? What are we doing with mind? Watching it. Watching it? Or listening. Or listening? Sensing? Settling. Circling? Settling. 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 Often we, that happens, but does it always happen? No. Does that mean we failed? Oh, yeah. <laughs> At least I've been told. <laughs> yeah. So we're watching it, we're settling it potentially. We're being with it. Working? We're being with it. We're being with it, studying. We're studying it. Mary? Expanding it. Expanding it. Ooh. That sounds great. What is is that like? It's it's nice when it happens. It's nice when it happens. Good work when you can find it. I don't know how much for me that it's, I mean, it's all of these things at various moments, but I find it particularly helpful to, to look at to look at it from the perspective of just minimizing distractions hmm. and then what ha- whatever happens happens and then you do all those things about observing or watching or expanding or whatever it is but I don't know what it is all I know is that I can't show up at a particular time I can sit in a particular posture and mm-hmm. then something happens I don't something know. happens yes and different yeah. things every time so you bring you're bringing up a very good point which is part of the settling point which is minimizing distractions. So, do you all know what it's like to have a distracted mind? What did you say? Do you all know? (laughs) (laughs) What do you do when you have a distracted mind? What is a a distracted mind? Because this is part of the study, right? This is one of the things I, I find so juicy about this is that when you look at the areas that the mental realm, again, I'm sorry for the the clunkiness of language to talk about this, but when we look at our own consciousness, and and again, I'm using it, it's like there's a, it's a noun in that sentence, but trying to back off the nounness of it, right? Looking at consciousness as process, uh, philosopher Wittgenstein called mind, he said mind is a verb. So that was very uh, astute. Okay, yeah. If you even notice that your mind is distracted, you're already <laughs> making a step. Absolutely, yeah, right? So how much do we even notice what's going on? How, how many times do we stop and pause and check what is our mental state? What is happening in our 
in our mind, in our mind consciousness, as opposed to say, for example, in our, uh, you know, there's there's all kinds of ways in which Buddhism talks about consciousness. So, so for example, uh, in the Yogacara school, there are six consciousnesses: eye consciousness, ear consciousness, nose consciousness, tongue or taste consciousness, body consciousness and mind consciousness is just one of those six consciousnesses right it's a way of unpacking our experience now unpacking it is not the same thing as analyzing so from the perspective of modern neuroscience or neuropsychology a lot of the emphasis is on this aspect of breaking it down into constituent parts into dissecting and labeling and um, categorizing in the Abhidhamma, the same, process, the same thing happened, although it came from meditators writing about experience, not from dissecting physical matter. Uh, I, have to, I have to share one of my favorite, my, my advisor in college, in, uh, in philosophy in graduate school, uh, amazing person. He taught this class that s- sticks with me, but it's kind of tells you like what the what the perspective was the class title was how meat makes meaning <laughs> how does meat make meaning this three pound blob in our that we carry around with us so the abhidhamma on the other hand comes at mental processes and mental factors and the constituents or what what the categories are of mind, breaks them down exhaustively into all the possible permutations and different mental states. This is one of the aspects in Buddhism when we start to slow down and actually turn the light inward to look at what's happening in our the processes. We start to develop a vocabulary to describe our inner, the interiority of our being. What's happening now in my mind, in my, bo- my, in my body mind? We can just call it one, you know, in my body mind. What are the adjectives that describe what's happening? Are they limited to happy, sad, glad? Or does our vocabulary expand as we try to settle enough to be able to see? Because as Bruce mentioned, this minimizing distractions, if we're so distracted and we all have uh, a disposition towards generating more and more distractions, right? We're kind of greedy that way, right? Uh, Maybe I'm speaking for myself. (laughs) But we we end up distracting ourselves. So this this aspect of practice, which is foundational in Zen, which is to... Uh, to sit in zazen, which, if you recall, for those of you who uh, have read Dogen, what is zazen? What is the essential art of zazen in regards to mind? Dropping away body and mind. Dropping away body and mind. It's another way of saying it. In his instruction manual, he says, think not thinking. How do you think not thinking? Yes, Mary? Not to be identified with your thoughts. To not be. Ah, yeah. Or your feelings. Your emotions? Nope. To not identify. How do you do that? Do you all know what is meant by identifying with your, your thoughts and your emotions? This is actually what drew, drove me into philosophy. It was actually a pursuit of figuring out what the right identity was. Who am I? That was the pursuit. It was like wanting to know who I truly was. Right. Very self-absorbed. I was a very, you know, I wrote bad poetry and like, all <laughs> and yet it's like that's not a hindrance, right? Actually, that is a part of way-seeking mind. That's part of what brought me into 
practice was a lot of selfing and self-concern, right? And yet, when we, when we go down this path, what do we find? We find that when we identify, what happens? When we identify with the particulars that are the transiently passing through consciousness. When we... Attach? Attach. <laughs> Thank you. Suffering. We, we suffer. And we study that when we sit. We study, we watch. Right? We, we try this not thinking, non-thinking. We try not to identify. And then we see ourselves over and over again. If we're paying attention, we see how mind grasps a hold of things, a, a certain aspect of mind, that is. And wants to make it about me. And actually, that's what it all comes down to. It all comes down to the fact that our condition as human beings, our baseline condition is one of exquisite ignorance about the, of the reality of the situation. So says Buddhism. We believe in a separate self. We believe there's an I that has thoughts that, um, which in a sense is true, yeah? We have a, a, a being, a personhood that makes decisions, that uh, goes throughout life and chooses, picks and chooses, um, has preferences, suffers, gets elated, has all kinds of uh, objects of, in the mind going through life. And yet when we identify and we attach to particular uh, conceptions of ourself, I'm this way, not that way. This is the right way, not the, you know, and that's the wrong way. This is who I want, how I want to appear. We go outward, so our, our focus is on externals as opposed to uh, seeing the transient nature the thoughts that come and go. There's many, there are many metaphors in Buddhism to describe these different kind of aspects of mind from an agitated mind to a settled mind. So for example, uh, the image of sitting by the riverbank watching as different things on the, in the river just kind of float by, right? A bubble. This is our conception of ourself it's passing, it's fleeting, it can be poked or just pop and disappear. However, we often find ourselves attaching, right? creating more suffering, creating an identity that then, when reality uh, flows as it is apt to do, comes into conflict with this vision of ourselves or a vision of uh, another person or another, a state of affairs, that's when the rub happens. Jack, did you, were you going to say something? No, I'm good. <laughs> so in this Abhidhamma, this kind of map of mental states, we don't talk about it very much. It's very dry. It's very dry and, um, a, you know, there's categories and lists that were uh, compiled by meditators who were looking deeply at their meditation experience and what they were finding as they uh, put their attention and energy into studying mental processes, studying their own minds. There's a, um, an interview I found with a Soto Zen priest, psychologist, Beth Jacobs. She wrote a book on the Abhidhamma. In her description of Abhidhamma and what the use of Abhidhamma is, she says, for me the bottom line is that the Abhidhamma helps you be more consonant with reality so that you're moving with the variables of your own existence in a more harmonious way not looping back, not fixating and getting stuck on your associations, 
but moving with the immediate perceptions that are in front of you and around you. And then she goes further and says, this to me is the ethical basis of Abhidharma. So, the ethical basis of Abhidharma. Sorry, I didn't, you looked like you were... <laughs> So in the Abhidhamma, there are whole lists. There's all, it's, a, it's composed of a number of different lists, including mental factors that are considered to be wholesome and mental factors that are considered to be unwholesome. There are mental factors that are considered beautiful and not beautiful, and so forth. And we can, we can, without knowing what those mental factors are, I think all of us have a sense of what is a wholesome mental factor and what is an unwholesome mental factor, right? So, for example, the three big unwholesome mental factors are greed, hatred, and delusion. Right. Anyone give me a, a beautiful mental factor or a, a wholesome mental factor? Compassion. Compassion. Joy. Joy. Peace. Peace. Settledness. Settledness hmm. and mental they probably break it down into other ones, but yes. <laughs> Love. Equanimity. Yes? Equanimity. Equanimity, yes. Equanimity. Generosity. Generosity. Mm -hmm. Do we know when we are, uh, when these mental factors are present? Not always. Not always, yeah. What helps us know? The body. Yeah, the embodied mind. That's what helps us know. We feel it in the body. So in this meditation that we did this last week, we, um, we started with, like a with just a body scan, a very, very minor body scan. Just locating parts of, the, putting our, taking our attention and being able to direct it to different parts of the body is itself a practice, right? What neuroscientists are finding out about this, this practice is that the connections that in the brain that uh, correlate or uh, are stimulated by directing the attention inward allows us to have a greater capacity for empathy of other people. How wonderful that this study of our own physicality being able to locate and direct our attention allows us to be able to see in other people their own, the ripples of their emotional life that go through their body. Right? The foundation of empathy, which is, leads us to the ability to have compassion. Right? So I love that these are, uh, that there's so many different ways to study this, and yet, as with all things that we're studying in Buddhism, in our, own, in our own experience, it's very easy that we call it a middle way practice because there's, you know, there's all these different ways that one could go that kind of lead you into distraction. Right? And so how, to, how when, we, uh, when we go to the cushion and we sit down in Sazen, we let go of our thinking doesn't mean that thoughts don't arise, but we let go of the active process of thinking about the thoughts and move towards experiencing what is. And what is, is arising and ceasing. On some level, it's a, what's arising and ceasing. As we settle the mind, or as the mind is settled by uh, allowing these extraneous things to drop away, what we find is that the coming and going aspect settles. And we reach a, maybe a deeper level of what we call mind. Right? A settled mind, a settledness. Then it's less about the objects or the contents of the mind and more about what mind, the, the process of our consciousness. So she says, this is Beth 
Jacobs. The Abhidhamma is asking, what are the causes and conditions of all the factors that bear on conscious activity? What is interacting with what? Which is very distinct from uh, the idea of looking at consciousness as something to dissect and break up. Right? It's more of a synthesis, locating consciousness in the pers- within the perspective of a larger, bigger, huge, vast, boundless universe, actually. So in this way, what we do when we sit zazen is process-oriented, not content-oriented. If we come into the zendo and sit down and look at the content of our thoughts... We're not meditating. <laughs> That's not meditating. Not to say that the content of thoughts doesn't, you know, we're not aware of content. It's a matter of where we direct our attention, how we direct the, the focus of mind. You think of it as light, shining light on something. When we shine the light on the process as opposed to the specific content. Do you all know what I mean by the, like that distinction? So when you think about the content, you're thinking about. When you're watching process, you're not thinking about process. You're engaging and opening up your senses completely to being with. Right? Being with as opposed to looking at from this dualistic separate position. Another metaphor of mind you find often in Buddhism is the metaphor of the sky. So this idea of the sky as uh, vast and unlimited, this azure blue, maybe a daytime sky, or a nighttime sky, this midnight blue, completely open and vast, without end, not one that we can necessarily conceive or experience, the end of space. However, sometimes the the sky is clouded over and there's storms like, wow, like yesterday. (laughs) What a wonderful, amazing amount of storms yesterday. Yeah, and lightning rips across the sky and there's angry clouds and spitting water and floods and... Yeah. And yet, the metaphor says, despite the activity of the clouds, there's a vast sky. It's there. It's there whether there's clouds there or not clouds there. Same thing, another metaphor is that of the ocean and the waves on the ocean. And we can think of this settling as a physical settling of the ocean waves, a turbulent water. Right? Imagine trying to traverse an ocean in turb- that such turbulent water. I read recently that uh, one of the indications of climate change um, that's being studied now is the increase in turbulence in ocean seas, in ocean storms. It had this feeling, I had this feeling of, of uh, the earth body, right? The earth body is being angry, being disrupted, being agitated even further. So in settling, in taking a step back and settling, what helps us to do that? What helps us not get caught up in the storms that pass across the boundless sky, the storms that attack the ocean surface. I think it's really important when I, to go back to, are we failing when we get caught up? Does it feel like failing? <laughs> it feels like it, but are we failing? And I think, Ernest, what you said is like when you notice that you're not aware or you notice that's already a huge amount. Right? So the Abhidhamma provides a, um, an exhaustive 
analysis or a description, a map, of all the possible mental states. And what's the point of all of this? What's the point of mapping out mental states for these early practitioners? When you can label the state, you can see it as a state. And not identify that. And not, yes. <laughs> yeah. Could you repeat that, Marco? When you, when you can label a state, you don't need to identify it. You can see it as merely a state. Right. It's not who you are. Right. Yeah. And one of the biggest, as I mentioned, the biggest delusion is that of uh, the ego, the dream of our of ego, the dream of self, as a separate entity that is in, that is individual and disconnected from other things, or or maybe connected but only on my terms. <laughs> And when it's not on my terms, then I can get very angry and upset and uh, defensive and protective. All around something that is swiftly fleeting and only a, a narrow slice of big mind, of mind, right? So we also have this analogy, Suzuki Roshi talks about big mind versus small mind. Big mind being vast as space, and small mind as being limited in its uh, uh, involvement. Limited and constricted. And as Maureen said, where do you find this? You find this in the body. You can see the, the workings of small mind, what Suzuki Roshi is calling small mind, by watching your own physicality and where you are holding versus releasing. Uchiyama Roshi has a book titled, I think the most recent title is Opening the Hand of Thought. Right? To open the hand, it's not getting rid of thoughts. You're not actively trying to get rid of your delusions. You open the hand, this idea of opening the hand of thought, it's like opening it and looking, being able to see it, to study it. Again, studying the, the process, studying how consciousness is a verb, the movements, the movements of mind. In, um, we had a visiting teacher this past weekend, Kokyo Henkel from the Santa Cruz Zen Center. And he, uh, he taught on the fascicle, this very mind is Buddha. And we'll try and get the recordings from that, those classes. He did four days, four days, three days of classes, hour and a half class each day, uh, twice a day. So quite a lot of uh, material. And it's always a delight to have Kokyo come because he's so enthusiastic about um, practice and in particular about the practice of boundlessness of awareness of, of investigating the boundlessness of our awareness which is in opposition or in uh, uh, contrast to when awareness becomes narrow and tight boundlessness in the Zen um, in Dogen Zenji's instructions to the cook which uh, Pat taught on last year is it just last year? last year is the year before in the uh, Dogen Zenji the founder of, of Soto Zen in Japan wrote a it's not really a fascicle because it's not, it's, it's part of the Shobogenzo. I think it's outside the Shobogenzo. Anyway, the book is called The Instructions to the Cook. Very practical guide to how to be, take up the position of the temple cook. Right? Now, it's also not just how to be a temple cook, it's how to be a practitioner in one's life. Right? And uh, Uchiyama Roji uh, wrote a book of commentaries on it called Refining Your Life. 
But in it, in the Tenzo Kyokun, Dogen Zenji talks about uh, mind, but he's not talking about it in the context of what is our everyday dualistic mind doing, but he gives some um, suggestions for the appropriate mind that the head cook needs to have in order to be a good, uh, well, in order to be a good cook for the temple. These minds are joyful mind, magnanimous mind, and grand parental mind. The mind of a grandparent. So, an example of, <clears throat> of this joyful mind. Well, he kind of describes all these reasons for why we should be very joyful. So, for example, we should reflect on what our lives might have been had we been born into one of the realms of hell. As an insatiable spirit, as some lowly animal, or as a demon, how difficult our lives would be if we suffered the misfortunes of these four circumstances or any other of the eight misfortunate conditions. We would be... Right. So, so basically, he says the joyful, a joyful mind is one of gratefulness and buoyancy. You should consider this carefully. Had you been born into some heavenly realm, so even if you're not in a demon realm or an animal realm or a hungry ghost realm, if you were born into some heavenly realm, you would most likely have become attached to the pleasures of that realm taking neither time nor opportunity to awaken your Bodhi spirit. Nor would it be likely to feel any particular necessity for practicing Buddha Dharma. Much less would you be able to prepare meals for the three treasures, <laughs> despite their being the highest and most worthy of all things. <laughs> right. So he talks about this, this, um, this joyful mind. In terms of magnanimous mind, magnanimous mind is the mind of equanimity. It's the mind that um, is big enough, mind like a mountain. It's big enough, stable enough, that it, it can accept anything. And it has this feeling of uh, having enough space and enough um, reserves to show up completely. It's not concerned with um, some of the more selfish, smaller concerns of small self. It is like a mountain, stable and impartial. Exemplifying the ocean, it is tolerant and views everything from the broadest perspective. Having a magnanimous mind means being without prejudice and refusing to take sides. When carrying something that weighs an ounce, do not think of it as light. And likewise, when you have to carry 50 pounds, do not think of it as heavy. This is an amazing practice to do this, and it's actually something that, that one can do in the kitchen. It's really fun to play with your mind in this way, which I would suggest that a large part of our Zen Buddhist practice is about playing, playing with mind, both on the cushion and outside the cushion. So for example, next time you find yourself in the kitchen and you're carrying big pots and you're, you're using light materials like ladles and things like that, try this out. Play with your mind. See if you can consider. Don't consider the, these objects that are heavy, that weigh, you know, 50 pounds. Carry them as if they were light. And the objects that are very light, carry them with the, as if they had the weight of being heavy. Right. See what that does. If you play with that, see what that does to your disposition. How it radiates out from that little practice into the rest of your, your day. Jess? Um, I was just going to say that you can do this with temperature too, and um, that's why kids don't feel cold because they don't attach to it. They're actually the same temperature, but they're just like, <laughs> not thinking they're cold. Yeah, it's amazing to see. Kids are a great study, right? You can yeah. see a kid like fall down, skin their knee, and if they if if they're you know in the middle of playing, they won't even notice. Yeah. But if an adult is looking at them and you know is like, oh, they're like, oh. 
<laughs> right? It's, and, and we can do that too. <laughs> we don't often think we can. And I think that this, this practice, one of the benefits of this practice is that it shatters our limited views. Right? It shatters our limited views. So he also says, do not get carried away by the sounds of spring, nor become heavy-hearted upon seeing the colors of fall. View the changes of the seasons as a whole and weigh the relativeness of light and heavy from a broad perspective. And then, on grandparental mind, you can imagine thinking, how many of you are grandparents? All right. Parents? Would you say, Mary, that becoming a grandparent has changed your mind? Yes. <laughs> what is the grandparental mind in your own experience? You just re- you become even more aware that you are a part of something much larger than you, and that you, you extend through relationship in all these different directions, and you become aware of all the parenting and nurture you've received before you even conscious because you're providing it. Ah. And, and, so, and how is it different from parental mind? I think, I think there's a little bit more of an ego involved in being a parent. So you're kind of on the, you're on the hook. You're not being anxious. <laughs> <laughs> you're, not, you're not as clear about yourself. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. So age maybe just be a part of it as well, age and experience. Age and clarity about who you are and not having it to be about yourself as much. Ah, yes. Yes. I think that's a big part. So how many parents, for you parents, uh, feel like you've fallen into a trap at some point in your parenthood? Uh, the fallen into the trap of, of wanting your, your kids to be little versions of you. How did that work out? <laughs> Sorry, this, I didn't mean to go into it. I've never been a parent. Never been a parent except to little to cats and dogs. <laughs> to my my inner child, maybe maybe not a very good parent. <laughs> right. So, grandparental mind is seen as. And actually, let me just describe what Dogen refers to it. And parental mind. Um, well, let's say he says the mind or attitude of a parent. He doesn't even call it and in this translation. It's a parent, parental mind. A parent, irrespective of poverty or difficult circumstances, loves and raises a child with care. How deep is love like this? Only a parent can understand it. A parent protects the children from cold and shades them from hot sun with no concern for his or her own personal war- welfare. Only a person in whom this mind has arisen can understand it, and only one in whom this attitude has become second nature can fully realize it. This is the ultimate in being a parent. In this same manner, when you handle rice, water, or anything else, you must have the affectionate and caring concern of a parent raising a child. Again, very practical suggestion for how to play with mind one specific aspect of playing with one's mind. This is captured in uh, the phrase that uh, defines the school of Soto Zen, Mimitsu no Kafu, careful attention to detail is the family wind, the family way. Careful attention to detail is not an obsessive, compulsive, like, no, it needs to be perfect, and it has to be lined up this way, and otherwise I'm going to have a fit. No, it's associated with this parental mind, this mind of care and love and affection, joyful affection. So to try these on, these three minds, during one's daily life, in Dogen's uh, Dogen's, uh, recommendation, just try it in the kitchen. You know, when you're cooking your next meal, each ingredient to lovingly care for it and cut it in a way that's appropriate for its, you know, that, that doesn't waste anything, right? So that you're using this beet or this carrot in its fullness. 
and respecting it. So even if it's a misshapen carrot, you can still love it, right? There's this great story. I mean, the story, the book Crooked Cucumber comes from Suzuki Roshi, uh, uh, his, is his nickname, being a crooked cucumber. And he is said, he's said to have gone into the rest, uh, uh, grocery stores and found sort of like the most beleaguered vegetable <laughs> and, and to, to purchase it and then to, you know, make it into some fantastic, delicious dish. Imagine that mind in contrast to the mind that only wants the best for itself, right? which is quite ordinary and quite normal, right? To go in and be like, oh, look at this produce. Oh, this one is the best one, right? And not to, I'm not making a, a statement that one way is better, but again, the encouragement here and the encouragement of, for anyone who comes to a Zen center is to stop first, just stop, meaning set aside the busyness and be with what's there. What are, what's, you know, like a chef, what's available in the kitchen? What's available in the refrigerator, in the pantry? What are the ingredients that are available to me right now? And then to be able to select um, in a loving, compassionate, parental way, what do you want to emphasize? What do you want to, do you want to, and this is again, when you're caught up, when we are caught up in our busyness, we don't necessarily see. We don't see clearly how we are ourselves caught or adding to the grasping that keeps us, for example, in a triggered state, in a defensive state, in an anxious state, in a depressed state, right? And it's incredibly hard when, when you're consumed in one of these states to take that step back and just stop and sit and breathe and wait patiently for the clouds to, for the rain to fall, for the clouds to rumble and the skies to clear with faith or trust that underneath all of this motion there is stillness and we find it we don't it's using the word faith is interesting because it's not a it's not a faith that's um, blind it's a faith that's born trust is maybe a better word for some a trust that's born from experience from trying it out so whether you're in this practice period or not, I encourage everyone to take that step back and look at mind just randomly through the day. Check in with your mind, with the processes of mind. See what's extra. See what's, uh, what's swiftly passing and how, how our interactions, how it, the process of interaction with these mental objects either keeps them alive, we feed them, or we open the hand and let it go without pushing away. Thank you very much.